I was wondering whether or not most of us believe it is fun to obey God. I know as I grew up, I didn't think it was. As I grew up remembering some of the sermons on the front and the second bench of the little church out there on West 8th Street in Eugene, Oregon, it was not fun to me at all. It was boring beyond belief as a very young child. We didn't have any children's program. I couldn't go into a different room. I couldn't color a book or something like that. I was supposed to just sit there and listen. Well, because I was kept out of a lot of athletic endeavors and other things in high school, there was not really a lot that was presented to me as a young boy growing up, and certainly in my teens, about the religion of God, the religion of the Bible, the truth of God, that was fun. Maybe it was because there was so much wrangling going on. Maybe it was because it didn't seem to me that the ministers were having fun. I remember so well so many of the ministers visiting in my father's pulpit down in Eugene, Oregon, and preaching on behalf of the Church of God's Seventh Day. And many of the sermons that I heard went right over my head. I didn't really know what they were talking about. And of course, some of the events that they really began to observe in those days were very strange to me. I felt very strange at some of the singing, the sobbing, the testimonials that went on in the prayer meetings. Altar calls were particularly embarrassing, especially they had a little altar in Eugene, and it, it had little turned pieces and was actually a railing. You've probably seen these in some churches. And uh, when the minister, sometimes my dad, sometimes others of the Church of God Seventh Day, would have a Wednesday night prayer meeting, they would sometimes have an altar call. And I remember occasions when a minister would be there and he would actually single out a person in the congregation by name. Maybe some young hellion, as they thought, that was roaring around on a motorcycle and showing off in front of the girls. And his family had been praying for him and his relatives had been praying for him and the minister would pray for him. And you can imagine how embarrassing it would be to be standing there with a little group about this size, maybe 80 people or so, and they have about six people that very quietly come up to the altar and they're all kneeling here and there's a lady at the organ playing quietly and some of them are sobbing audibly and the minister's voice is breaking and he looks out there at the audience and he says, Bill, are you going to reject the call of the Lord? Are you going to reject even your beloved parents standing there beside you? Won't you come right now, Bill, and give your heart to the Lord? Won't you come while these others are here? Oh, you know, and you wonder, well, dag, I mean, this guy is sick. He's, he's, uh, he's had a horrible uh, lunch today. Something is disagreeing with him. Uh, maybe he has uh, something wrong with his viscera or his liver. But you probably have experienced things similar to that in your, in your background. As I used to visit Catholic churches when I was in the Navy, uh, it wasn't fun. I would go into the Catholic Church and it was so quiet, you know, and everything was so formal. And I would walk in and I didn't go through the rigmarole, I watched other people and they knew that I was an interloper or a visitor and they didn't kick me out in my naval uniform, but I would go down and I would take a seat and I would watch what was going on, kind of look around as they knelt and then got up and the priest went through all these signs and so on. But it most certainly was not fun. But finally, as a very young boy, young teenager, I began to have fun. The first time I ever had fun in the church was when I went up to a place called Belknap Springs to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. And I took along my fishing rod, and some of us took along an old beat-up 22 pistol. We took our old loggers' boots and our outdoor clothing, 
And we kids would take off. Now, we sat in services at least part of the time or much of the time, but between services. There was time to go across the swinging bridge and there was a hot pool over there. You could boil eggs in. You could climb the mountain. You could run down the river and go fishing. We had time for recreation and all of that. And it was really fun. Now, when I was first out of the Navy, I remember that uh, the very first year that I had an opportunity to go to the Feast of Tabernacles, there was no way I was going to be left behind. I was absolutely unconverted, had not even thought of it. I resented the idea. I probably would have popped somebody in the nose if they'd have said I would ever be either in the church or a minister. But though I was taking about 10 hours in Ambassador College, and I was only in there for a period of time because I wanted to keep my job as office manager over about 11 employees in the mailing department to get my 37.50 a week for beer and cigarette money. It was paying no rent at home. And I certainly wanted to go where these college kids were going to go. And all of them were going to pick up and go. So why didn't I go? So I did. A bunch of us got together in our old car, and we trooped up there. My brother had his car, and I had mine. And my brother, I don't believe, I don't remember whether he was baptized yet or not at that time. But uh, I know that most of the young students in the college, including John Hill, who was a close personal friend of mine, was not. And that was the very first time. I remember I tried to take my wife, Shirley, fishing, always at the feast. They always went to a resort area, and this was no exception. There was a beautiful lake called Clear Lake right near there, and a lot of mountains and little streams and beautiful uh, forested hills and so on. So, of course, I loaded up all my fishing gear. Well, I went over and had to ask Mr. Pawpaw, we called him Pawpaw later, uh, Pawpaw Hammer, Mr. Hammer, if I could take his daughter fishing. And I showed up at, what was it, about 6 o'clock or so, 6.30, very early in the morning, and we had decided we were going to go fishing the evening before, and it turned out that uh, he said no, uh, he didn't want his daughter to go fishing with me. And uh, so we didn't get to go fishing, but at least I remember that I, that I tried to take Shirley fishing. And it's worked out that way pretty well throughout our marriage, except from then on it was she that said no, I don't want to go fishing. She has on an occasion, once or twice. But as I look back, I began to realize that at least in my life, the only thing I ever really understood that that church did that was fun to me as a youngster was the Feast of Tabernacles. And I began wondering, is it fun to obey God? Now, you know, there are some people in this world that I guess you've got to say are some of the luckiest people in the world. I could even include some professional sportsmen, except that there are the potential potentials for injury. We understand that maybe Staubach is about to retire from the Dallas Cowboys, and certain ones have. Professional football players sometimes can go through life all crippled up. But on the other hand, if you look at a professional basketball player, hockey player, football player, they go through high school. They become incredibly, you know, adept at what they do in their sport. They're very gifted, and a lot of them are very hungry. And they learn on back lots in Brooklyn or Los Angeles or somewhere, and they become fantastic sportsmen. Then on up in college, they probably go to college on a scholarship because they were so good in high school. It's a tremendous free ride almost because some of these big colleges are willing to pay your fare through your educational process and lots of other little goodies allowed by law and the conference. And then, of course, some of them can even leave college and get into the professionals before they end up their four years, and several of them have done it, called hardship cases. But if they go on into professional sports, here you are, people having fun. I mean, for over 20 years of my life, I was able to play basketball four, five, six times a week with these young 18, 19-year-old kids in college. And I got to tell you, playing basketball is fun. It 
is enjoyable beyond, beyond belief and you don't have any other incentive about keeping your weight down it's good for your heart good for your lungs your circulatory system it's good for your skin texture it's good for your health it's probably even good for your attitude it's fun but what about being paid for having fun doing something you do well and being paid for it I tell you I'm fascinated by the career of Norman Rockwell and you look into his uh, books that he is the of the art uh, my brother-in-law has one over there and it's just fantastic art and I think of how much fun that must have been now I'm a painter of sorts I've splashed a few rather crude landscapes and different ones some of them with animals in them and every time I finish a painting and put it away somewhere or try to give it away <laughs> if I can or whatever it was fun I have a sense of accomplishment when I have finished it every time I put in a beautiful garden that was fun it was work but it was fun and when I would go out in the morning and see these little shoots coming out and I would watch these little green crookneck squash or I'd go out and dig up some parsnips or something it was fun many a time I'd sit down with a meal in which everything on that plate had been produced by my own sweat and labor in one way or another including the meat maybe I'd have elk meat or we'd have deer meat and every vegetable on that plate including everything in the salad we'd grown ourselves and that was fun I think when a housewife finishes spring cleaning and finally exhausted looks around her home and it's absolutely spotless and spick and span she has a really great feeling now, you know there's some things in the Christian life that you do that you do consciously almost as a matter of form a matter of ceremony you take your body you put it in a car you go to a certain address you sit there and you do this or that you go through a certain routine and you feel good about it you're happy and it's fun now other things in the Christian life trying to control your attitude trying to control your tongue trying not to gossip trying to control your anger or your hatred if you have it seething inside of you when someone else takes advantage of you or someone is persecuting you for religious reasons and so on that's not fun it's not fun at all several things happened to me recently that just were not fun I got to be here to tell you that there was no fun involved in some things that have occurred but you know even though the last few mornings I've had some crank calls I had one this morning it was not a bit of fun you know 624 in the morning a liner like this the phone rings and some characters completely out of his mind obviously he's virtually crazy I don't even know what in the world he's talking about or what he's trying to say it decidedly was not fun but what I'm doing right now today is fun turn to John the 13th chapter and beginning to read in verse 17 John 13 and verse 17 just want to take a look at this scripture as the hallmark scripture for this message today Jesus said and I'll read up to it beginning in verse 13 while you're turning there and this has to do with the Passover and with the foot washing ceremony you call me he said in verse 13 master and Lord and you say well for so I am if I then your Lord and master have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you verily verily I say unto you the servant is not greater than his Lord neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him an interesting scripture verse 17 if you know these things happy are you if you do them that's interesting he's talking about washing one another's feet he also is saying he has given us an example 
that we should do as he has done. In any case, do according to Jesus' example. Then he says in verse 17, if, that biggest little two-letter word in the English language, if you know these things. Now, unfortunately today, there are many people who have chosen to play church. When I was a kid growing up, I played house. We played doctor and nurse. Kids play all sorts of weird games. I played cops and robbers. I played cowboys and Indians. I played at World War II. Some of the kids in the neighborhood had some old World War I helmets, so we would make wooden rifles, and we would dig gun pits, and we would fire away at each other. I took the garbage can lid, put my little arm through it, tied one of my mother's dishpan uh, rags around my uh, neck, and with a little wooden sword went rushing around pretending that I was a knight. I had a hobby horse. I would run around on stilts through the mud pretending that was a tank and make crazy noises. It was really weird growing up as a little kid in Oregon where I was. And you know, I think a lot of us are just about the same. We play at various games. Life is nothing but a big game to us oftentimes as we are children. And I think sometimes people want to play church. There seems to be a sentiment that I hear coming from various people because of the incredible thing that has happened to God's church in the past nearly two years. And they're looking desperately for something that satisfies. And I hear coming back to me in forms, oral, or through the so-called grapevine, or in letters that I receive, or in telephone calls, I couldn't even begin to count now the numbers of groups there are that have sprung up. The numbers of would-be leaders here and there who have sprung up and taken root here and there all over the country received a rather frantic letter from a man out in the West Coast telling me about all the things going on and a man that was traveling and conducting services and he'd taken two families and so on. I can only begin to believe that people play at church. It seems to be that the thinking is, where can I find a group of people with whom I am comfortable? Where can I find a group of people I like? Where can I find a man whose method and mode of preaching and personality and his opinions and his attitudes and the tone of his voice is something that turns me on? And I, I kind of don't mind listening to him. But now this other guy, I really, I can't stand listening to him. It, it kind of bothers me. We have a lot of people that went out of God's church for all the wrong reasons. Not for the right reasons. Not for a moral reason. Not because they stood fast on the principles of Jesus Christ and said, I can no longer tolerate, abide, or uh, agree with what is going on here, so therefore I've got to remain true to what I see in the Bible and the Word of God. But we see some opportunists sometimes. Sometimes in local areas you will see people who began as warm and friendly and loving lay members opening up their homes and saying, Brethren, here's a haven. Here's a place to come and to have a cup of coffee and a glass of juice and some cookies and we can sit down here together and visit like friends and brethren as Christian brothers and sisters together. I'll put on a tape on my tape recorder. You can hear a sermon that came from Tyler and we'll all chat about it and we'll talk about the sermon later on and just have good fellowship. But later on you find out there were two people who wanted to do that. And because we wanted to at least put something in our publication that told people along the way where in a given area, whether it's some big city or some statewide area or a whole region of the country, you might be able to dial a telephone number and find someone who would be willing to act as a host 
to invite you into their own private home. Instead of spending the money to go down and rent a great big expensive hall and, you know, a Holiday Inn or something that might cost you $100, let's just do it for free and you're welcome to come into my home. Well, we find out later on there might have been two people who wanted to do that in the same area. Uh-oh. Sometimes, problems. Well, that's human nature, and I guess that is inevitable. As I've said recently, I've got it figured out that three people who were cast adrift in a life raft would begin arguing about who got to sit on the thwart. And there would be a terrible argument about who would be sitting in the stern and who would get to sit in the middle of the boat and who would sit in the, in the prow of the boat or something like that. And I guess that's just human nature. But what about asking ourselves, do we want to obey God? Are we playing at church? Or are we in a direct relationship with the creator God of heaven above who says, I change not, who gives us every breath of air we breathe, the God who had the power to create, as we've been learning in our Bible classes, who had the power to take the power of the atom, the power of the universe, and to squeeze it into solid material and to store in this incredible solid material we call Earth, made up basically of the hydrogen atom, which is like a moving little universe of electrons, neutrons, and protons, moving at blinding speed so that there's something like 100 billion billion atoms in one drop of water, and so that matter itself, even as it says in Romans the first chapter, is made of those things which doth not appear. And that we can understand the spiritual by the things that are made, because even solid matter is really spiritual energy in a certain form. And it can, by a chain reaction in what is called fusion, be transferred back into that pure energy form. Are we worshiping God? Is God's memory short? Is the God who dealt with Abraham, the God who talked with Adam, the God who got down in the dust of the earth and wrestled with Jacob, the God who thundered and roared behind that giant black cloud and split the rock with his lightning and wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger in stone, has he really gone way off somewhere? Does he have anything to do with what is going on in his church, in the body? of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Has he forgotten it? Has he forsaken it? Do we take him into account in our thinking anymore? Or are we merely appraising, like holding up a piece of underwear over here and finding out if the buttons are all in place, this group and that group, this doctrine and that doctrine, whether this group keeps that custom or another group keeps or observes another custom. And when we get everything in place, and we like the customs that this group keeps, and we think, well, they're nice people, and they don't do this, and I don't want to do that. So I'm going to go over there with them, and I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to be satisfied with myself. Fine. You might be satisfied with yourself, but is God satisfied with you? There are many people who have been drawing back from Jesus' statement, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And there are many people who know, but they're not happy because they are not willing to do. There are many people who do not know because they are blinded. There are other people who choose not to know, who really don't want to know because they're afraid it might be too difficult. There are others who did know and they have lost that original truth because first it takes a root of bitterness. 
Have you ever seen the way a tree can actually dislodge a sidewalk, can move the foundation of a building? You can let a root of a tree, a little acorn, begin to grow along the edge of a sidewalk and as the tree begins to grow gradually solid concrete. Sometimes the foundation of a building can be cracked, split, and then just dislodged and the structure itself moved a little bit by a little root that began to grow. There's such a thing as a root of bitterness that can get into human hearts. And once that root, almost like a cancer that can begin to grow tentacle-like in parts of your body, begins to root itself deeply inside that body, it's incredible what the human mind can do to justify its position. Disobeying God, forgetting revealed knowledge, forgetting the knowledge and the truth given in a dozen, a hundred, two hundred sermons, hundreds of broadcasts, dozens of magazines, 20 years, 30 years of knowledge and of practice of the truth of God down the drain because they're mad at a man. I've never understood why people turn their backs on God because they're, they're mad at a man. If you're mad at a man, single out that man. Analyze why you are angry at that man. And then keep your relationship with God over on a separate sheet of paper. Analyze that relationship. Should your anger be directed toward that man in the first place? Is it valid? Is it bona fide? Should you have it? Is it bad for you? Or is it good for you? Is it hurting that man or that organization he represents? Or is it hurting you? Is that anger justified in the light of the word of God? Does God want you to have the anger? Did God give you the anger? Is it a gift from him? If it is, and you should have that anger in your heart, then I guess it's good for you. But doesn't God's word say, be ye angry and sin not? Doesn't God's word say, let not the sun go down on your wrath? If we could just see the difference between this feeling of human emotion, of maybe a feeling of betrayal, a feeling of being let down, a feeling of disgust, toward a human organization or the human person at the helm of that organization should never clutter up our relationship to our God, to our Creator. Therefore, it doesn't make any sense at all to depart from revealed truth, to leave knowledge that you have accumulated over the scores sometimes of years, and to depart from that truth because you're angry at a human being. God will never listen to such excuses. Listen to this scripture because it's a hallmark scripture of what I want to go through with quickly in this sermon. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. He was talking about the Passover. I want to go back to the book of Exodus chapter 12 and verse 14 right quickly. Exodus 12 and verse 14, where in the original Exodus and the Passover, and we're just about to observe it tomorrow night, he began to say, and this day shall be unto you for a memorial. You shall keep it a feast to the eternal, not a feast to the Jews, not a feast of a particular church, a feast unto the eternal throughout your generations. Now, the only limiting factor there was however long there would be generations of Israelitish people living on the earth. And there still are Israelites living on the earth it is to be a feast of the eternal. You will notice there is not one word said about morning and evening, burnt offerings and sacrifices. Not one word said about special high day sacrifices. Remember Jeremiah 7.22. 
that we read before in one of the Bible studies where he said, I spoke not concerning sacrifices in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of, the Egypt, out of Egypt, but this thing only did I say, you will be unto me a people, I will be unto you a God. He said, obey my voice. Remember that God says many times, I once preached a sermon on this and I had people mad at me, I guess, because they just didn't understand God's attitude toward sacrifices. But I singled out all of those scriptures in the Old Testament where God showed that, that sacrifices were absolutely repugnant to him. He said, away with your burnt offerings. He said, put the branch to your nose. He said, Lebanon is not sufficient to burn unto me. He said, you could burn the cattle herds of the entire land of Canaan, line them up and let it be a pyre to the skies and burn thousands of cattle. It wouldn't help me any. It wouldn't move me a bit. I don't delight in it. The eternal delighteth not in burnt offerings or sacrifices. He delights in a broken and a contrite spirit and those who tremble at his word. Those who are willing to obey God, he delights in. Now these feast days of God were given when the church was established. The ecclesia, or the ecclesia, however you want to pronounce it, in the wilderness was that group of people, like spiritual Israel is God's church today, if you be Christ and are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, and just like the Sabbath was made, when man was made in the original creation that we're going to come to very shortly in the Bible study, so the annual holy days and the calendar were revealed at the very same time. They had lost time. They didn't even know when the first month was. God revealed and said, this is the first month. On the tenth day of this first month, you take this unblemished lamb. On the fourteenth day, you keep it until even, and between the two evenings, any time from sunset to sunset, you kill this paschal sacrifice, and you put the blood on the lintels and the doorposts, and that is your Passover. And he said, you're to keep this throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eats unleavened bread, or sorry, whoever eats leavened bread, from the first day until the seventh day, that soul, nephesh, that creature, that body, that one, shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, say that which every man must eat. So preparation of food, in that case, that was in the old times where it really took a lot of manual labor because you had to kill the lamb, you had to take the entrails out, you had to hide it, you had to cut the hocks off and the head, you had to dress it and so on. It'd be a lot more extensive than today. Only that may be done of you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. An interesting statement, isn't it? In this selfsame day. They went out on the 15th, they went out by night. Now he went on to say, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one on the 20th day of the month at even, absolute proof that they did partake of unleavened bread on the Passover supper, but over and over again there must be seven or ten or more scriptures that say that the days of unleavened bread last for only seven days. Let's notice in Exodus, the 13th chapter, beginning in verse 6. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast of the eternal. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days and there shall be no unleavened bread seen with thee, neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. Now, unleavened bread has been fun for me 
because actually a lot of times some of the funniest stories that I can tell you are by people who either did slip up or almost slipped up during the days of unleavened bread. Some of the funny stories that we've heard in the church in many, many years have to do with some of the old days up in Big Sandy of the keeping of the days of unleavened bread. In the early years, for example, for several years running, we were growing by leaps and bounds. We would have 1,200 and 2,000 and 3 and then 4, even for a spring feast of eight full days. And we used to observe the festival those full eight days because they would get there for the Passover and stay for the next seven. And of course, the Gladewater and Big Sandy restaurants and cafes knew that we were going to descend on that area like hordes from all over the country. And so they would load in all of this matzos and rye crisp and, and taco stuff, I guess, and all of the unleavened bread that they possibly could in all these cafes, and they were ready for us. And I remember this one cafe, I don't remember which one it was, uh, Guy Carnes might, but uh, that fall, that Feast of Tabernacles, here came about 5,000 of us. And this restaurant owner said, I'm ready for them this time. I've loaded in, I forget how many boxes, he said, of matzos and unleavened bread. He was really ready for that church going to come over there for the Feast of Tabernacles. And he just thought we, we, that's all we ate. He didn't know uh, uh, that we only did that for seven days out of the year. I remember so many times going into restaurants and sometimes almost slipping up. I remember one time, one year out of, I don't know how many, uh, don't quote me, that I ate a cheeseburger. And it wasn't until about two days later, I think, or whenever it was, I remembered it. And I thought, oh, no. Well, you know, uh, God didn't strike me dead like Uzzah when he grabbed the ark. But, you know, I've compared stories with people, and especially when you're traveling, that's a difficulty. When you eat in restaurants a lot, you better beware, look out. If you're eating at home, is no problem. You get rid of it, there's just none there. No problem. But when you're eating in restaurants, if you're not careful, you will be eating some leaven before you know it. Well, I found out that it's fun to observe the Days of Unleavened Bread and to observe God's annual holy days for a very great and profound reason. It's fun because of what it does to your conscience the way you feel about yourself. Just as much as you feel that way when you finish spring housekeeping or cleaning, just as much as you feel when you finish a book or a painting, when you construct or you finish something, you create something, you feel good about it. You know, when God gives you certain outlets, it's difficult to get control, as I said, of your attitude. That's sometimes not very much fun. But when you can do deliberately something in a physical sense, you go there, you observe something, and you do it, and you say to yourself, I obeyed God today. I just took this word, and I in my life matched my actions to that word. My actions match what my forefathers were doing for thousands of years in history. And God looks down, and just like you could hold up an identity card, and you could say, Lord, here I am. You said in Exodus 31, my Sabbath shall you keep. These are to be a perennial or perpetual sign between God and his people for all these ages. And here are these people on the earth. If God is going to look down on this earth and find out where are his people tomorrow night and the following night on the night to be much observed and the following day on the first annual day of unleavened bread. Do you know how many people on this earth are really God's people, obedient to God, obedient not only to God part of the way, but obedient as far as they know, as far as they have been taught, beyond the amount of knowledge that has been given for whatever purposes to other people who may be, quote, Christian folk, who may have clean hearts in their own conscience, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is a sin. Let each man be fully persuaded in his own mind. 
Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. What is this attitude that says, wait a minute, how much can I avoid doing? How much can I get out of? How much debt I have to give? How many trips can I avoid? How much money can I keep for myself and not give into God's work? Do we really honestly believe that that spirit, that approach, that attitude is going to be in the kingdom of God? And even if you say, well, you think you might squeak into the kingdom of God with that very legalistic attitude of how many inches does God require? How many millimeters of obedience? That much and that much only I will give him. Do you believe, even if you believe someone might squeak into the kingdom with that brand of obedience, that they're going to be given very much of a reward? Because God's word talks about a reward as well. I want to show you very quickly a few other examples about these annual holy days and how they were observed. First, Deuteronomy 16 and verse 1. Let's go to Deuteronomy, the 16th chapter. I'm going to have to synopsize or very uh, greatly uh, curtail some of the things that I had for you and ripple along here very quickly, I can see. In the 16th chapter, it says, Observe the month of Abib, chapter 1, verse 1, and keep the Passover unto the eternal your God, because in the month of Abib the eternal your God brought you forth out of Egypt by night, you shall therefore sacrifice the Passover unto the eternal your God of the flock and the herd in the place which the eternal shall choose to place his name there. I want to show you an example in a moment of how a king who was in rebellion toward God decided to alter all of that for a very great political reason. Thou shalt eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread therewith, even the bread of affliction, for you came forth out of the land of Egypt in haste that you may remember the day when you came forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And there shall not be leavened bread. There shall be no leavened bread seen with thee in all thy coast seven days, and so on. Verse 8, six days you are to eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the eternal your God. You shall do no work therein. Seven weeks you shall number unto thee, begin to number the seven weeks from such time as you begin to put the sickle to the corn. And you're to keep the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of First Fruits, that later became called Pentecost, because count 50 or 50th in the Greek language is Pentecost, and we see that in Acts, the second chapter. In verse 12, you shall remember that you were a bondman in Egypt, paraphrased into Christian language in the New Testament times, you shall remember that you were a slave to sin, and you shall observe and do these statutes. Verse 13, you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days. After that you have gathered in your corn and your wine. Verse 16 and 17 talks about the three seasons of the year, the spring festivals, then, of course, Pentecost, and the fall festivals of Trumpets, Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the great final day. It only deals with those three times, not specific moments in time, but three general seasons, and talks about not appearing empty in verse 16, and to give as we are able. Let's notice in Joshua 5 and verses 10 and 11 for a moment. After Aaron died, Miriam died first, then Aaron, then finally, of course, Moses, and they were not allowed to cross over the river, Joshua apparently walked a very short Sabbath day's journey on the Sabbath day. I won't go into that. I was studying that this morning. But we can see it was on the tenth day of the first month in verse 19 of chapter 4. And it said in verse 10 of chapter 5, the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho, and did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover. They couldn't harvest anything because obviously they had not yet planted anything, and so on 
unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. Notice then that God caused the Israelites to observe the Passover and the days of unleavened bread when they came out of Egypt, and he also caused them to observe the Passover and the days of unleavened bread on the very first day that they went into the promised land. The biblical types are rather obvious. The one is coming out of the type of sin, the other is entering into the type of the promised land. And the very first thing they did, obey God by observing his annual holy days. In 1 Kings 12 and verse 19, let's turn to that. 1 Kings 12 and verse 19, I want to show you very briefly, after the death of Solomon, you see back in chapter 11 and verse 3 that he had 700 wise princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And verse 4, it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the eternal as God as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, and that's Ashtar, or Estarte, from which we take Easter today, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the eternal and went not fully after the eternal, as did David his father. A remarkable example, really, when you study the book of Ecclesiastes and you study the Proverbs and you're realizing that you are reading wisdom par excellence, some of the greatest, most profound statements that have ever been uttered by man are found in Solomon's Proverbs. Solomon alone, during the prime of his life, was said to have had more wisdom and understanding than any other living man, and perhaps in some ways more wisdom than any man from that time until this. And yet look what happened later on to that same man who had all that wisdom, all that understanding earlier in life. Now because of that, God said he was going to rend that kingdom away, but he said he wouldn't do it in the days of Solomon, and Solomon died basically in peace. Immediately later, because Rehoboam was Solomon's son, and Jeroboam was Solomon's servant, God gave the northern ten tribes to Jeroboam, and they were rendered away from Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the king over Judah, and Jeroboam became the king over the northern ten tribes of Israel. From that time on, you're dealing with a separate dynasty of kings. Now, notice what Jeroboam did. Beginning in chapter 12 and verse 19, it says, Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. And then let's notice down in verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein, and went out from thence and built Penuel, which is a place that means I have seen God face to face. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. He's thinking politically. Jeroboam is thinking, if I don't do something to stop these people from doing what? Look, verse 27, If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the eternal at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of his people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Interesting scripture, isn't it? What were his motives? Totally political. I want them to follow me. And so he says to the people, completely a lie, because he didn't really care whether it was too much for the people or not. He was thinking, what is good for me? How do I keep these people that I now have under my kingship here locked in? How do I keep them as a part of my 
province here so that the goods that they produce I enjoy, I can conscript their young people, I can rule over them as a king over all of these ten tribes. Ah, I have it. I've got to change the annual holy days. I can't let them observe these annual holy days, these, these annual occasions, these pilgrimages to go down there to Jerusalem because they'll look to that as their spiritual capital. So I've got to change it. So I'll play upon the people's feelings about being put upon because if they got to go 90 miles or 65 miles and drive about three cattle with them, they got to take their firstlings and batting sheep and maybe a couple of horses, or no, they couldn't get horses, but the uh, oxen and, and so on and go all this distance. It's too much for you. It's too difficult. It's too hard to go to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel and the other one he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. Jeroboam knew he couldn't get away with canceling out the feasts of God's seventh month. He couldn't do that. He would have absolute rebellion on his hands. It was far easier to play upon the people's lack of enthusiasm for journeying all the way to the place where God had set his name and instead to get a substitute feast, have a counterfeit feast, ordain himself a counterfeit priesthood, have a counterfeit location, counterfeit gods, and a counterfeit feast in the eighth month. Did it work? Beautifully. Of course. Because the people were so gullible, they were just going to follow their leader. Going to do exactly what the leader did. The people were only too eager to have a leader come along and tell them, Hey, this former leader, this former king you had, he was making it tough on you. He's saying you've got to go to Jerusalem every year at this time of the year to obey God. No, you don't. Here, God looks like a cow. Here's your God, the one that brought you out of Israel. When you heard all that noise your forefathers did on the mountain, it was a cow up there making all that noise. These golden calves, this is what God looks like. So it says, he offered upon the altar, in verse 33, which he had made in Bethel, the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense, all of which was a great abomination in God's sight. And, of course, near civil war occurred, but finally God intervened, and we notice that the kingdom was literally rent apart. So we find out that later on, as these dynasties of kings continued along, there was nothing but war and problems from that time on, until you come down a little bit further on in Second Kings, the latter part of it, and you read where Israel went into captivity, and not one of them ever returned again. I want to show you the very first great reform that occurred. Now, in 2 Chronicles 29, there are several others that I'll have to skip over for lack of time. Let's go to 2 Chronicles 29 right quickly and look at a great reform that was conducted by King Hezekiah. Hezekiah began to reign when he was only 25, chapter 29 of 2 Chronicles, and he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. It shows how he began to discover, again, the covenant of the eternal and in verse 15, they gathered the brethren and sanctified themselves and came, according to the commandment of the king, by the words of the eternal, to cleanse the house of the eternal. Now, every single time Israel got back to God under a righteous king, 
and there was a reformation like under Hezekiah and under Josiah. It was as a result of the discovery of the laws having to do with God's annual festivals and holy days, and in every case, and there are at least three of them that you read of in major chapters of the Bible, it had to do with sanctifying the people and the priests and observing the Passover, the days of unleavened bread, and in one case, as we're going to see, even observing them over again twice, unless that's one that I'm going to have to skip over here for lack of time. So the priests went to the inner house of the Eternal to cleanse it, verse 16, and brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Eternal under the court of the house of the Eternal. The Levites took it and they went out to carry it to the brook Kidron. Well, they burnt everything up, they pounded it into dust, they dumped it into the brook and it was carried away. Verse 17, now they began on the first day of the first month to sanctify. Here we are to Abib or Nisan again. And on the eighth day of the month, they came to the porch of the Eternal, so they sanctified the house of the Eternal in eight days. And on the sixteenth day of the first month, they made an end. Well, they passed by the tent when they should have taken the lamb and set it aside, an unblemished lamb, lamb, and they had passed by, by now, the fourteenth when they should have observed the Passover, and the fifteenth when it should have been the first day of unleavened bread. What did they do? They went into Hezekiah the king and said, We have cleansed all the house of the eternal and the altar of burnt offering, all the vessels thereof, and the showbread table with all the vessels thereof. And then they talked about all the various sacrifices that were to be offered. Now notice chapter 30. Hezekiah sent to all of Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the eternal at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the eternal God of Israel. For the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month. Why, sure, because when they discovered the book of the law, they also discovered what it said in, and i got to look it up, Numbers 9 and verse 10 and 11, where it talked about if anyone was unclean as a result of touching the carcass of an unclean animal or a dead body or was too far away on a journey, there was an alternative. They could observe the Passover one month later. God wrote that in his law. So here the whole nation under this king decided to keep the Passover in the second month. Verse 3, they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently. So here was a great reform, getting rid of idolatry, getting rid of all sorts of pagan things, abominable things, upright obelisks and so on that were inside. You can read both of those chapters and see what it was. Verse 13, and they assembled at Jerusalem much people to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month of a great congregation. And they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and all the altars for incense took they away and cast them into the brook Kidron. That's dry today, but then it must have been quite a little stream. Then they killed the Passover on the fourteenth day of the second month, and the priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought in the burnt offerings unto the house of the Eternal. Notice verse 17, there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified, therefore the Levites had the charge of killing of the Passovers, plural. Notice that, the individual application of the killing of the Passovers, meaning each lamb was looked upon as the Passover for that individual family. For everyone that was not clean to sanctify them unto the eternal. For a multitude of the people, many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulon, had not cleansed themselves Yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The Lord, the good God, the good eternal, pardon everyone that prepares his heart to seek God. Imagine that. 
not only were these people back during that day diligent to observe the annual holy days of God, but if on this great occasion of a reformation under a righteous king of Israel, they were trying to restore the service of God and observe the Passover in the days of unleavened bread, they missed it because of the purification rites taking too much time. Some of them weren't even purified yet, but it was so urgent upon them to observe the Passover, the king prayed that they would be forgiven, and God listened. He said, the good eternal pardon everyone that prepares his heart to seek God. What were they doing in these feasts? Just knuckling under to a, a hard-bitten, self-righteous old king? Doing some legalistic, ritualistic, obnoxious, uh, kind of unnecessary yoke of bondage or something? Or weren't they seeking God? Wasn't it almost like the greatest, most joyous act of worship, of prayer, of communication with God that you've ever seen? Look at this, at the rest of this chapter. I won't read it all, but you can read it later. The Eternal hearkened to Hezekiah, verse 20, and he healed the people. And the children of Israel that were present at Jerusalem kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness, and the Levites and the priests praised the Eternal day by day, singing with loud instruments unto the Eternal. You see there, honey? Even in those days, the, the instruments were too loud. <laughs> anyway, oftentimes we, when we'll have, <laughs> we'll have some music on a holy day or a Sabbath service, and for some reason, every time you get these electronic instruments, they got these things cranked up so loud that the fleas come jumping out of the floor. It's unbelievable how loud it is. These little kids will get right up there next to it, and it's killing us back in the back row. And they got their ears plastered right against this thing and reverberating to where it shakes the floor. So they had loud instruments, though. It shows that they had a happy feast, and it shows that there's nothing wrong at all during the days of my leaven bread to have loud instruments, by the way. So that's the last time anybody gets to complain about how loud the instruments are. Okay. Verse 22. And Hezekiah spake comfortably to all the Levites that taught the good knowledge of the eternal. Now, let me just ask you, you know, as you think about the people who are being taught today that the holy days of God are a bondage upon them, they're some kind of a yoke, they're unnecessary, they're painful, they make you unhappy, they're not good for you. You don't have to do that. Just like Jeroboam said, look, you don't have to go down to Jerusalem. Let's do it in the eighth month and do it right here in Bethel and Dan. Stay at home where I can rule over you. Don't go trotting off down there to Rehoboam, the real bona fide king of Judah, where the capital city of Jerusalem is. Stay here with me. i got an alternative idea. I just have to ask these people, can you find Bible evidence that God Almighty himself cursed people for observing the annual holy days a month late? Now someone's going to say, well, yeah, but wait a minute. According to the law, they had an alternative festival one month late. Not a second days of unleavened bread, they didn't. You can search Numbers 9, 10, and 11 for the next hundred years, and you will find only the Passover mentioned. But they observed the entire days of unleavened bread. But wait a minute. We haven't finished the story yet. Look at this. The good knowledge of the eternal. Verse 22. And they did eat throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the eternal God of their fathers. And the whole assembly took counsel to keep other seven days, and they kept other seven days with gladness. They went beyond an alternative festival, which they weren't commanded anyway, kept the whole seven days of unleavened bread. God looked down and just blessed them beyond belief. They're leaping around, feasting, eating, dancing, praying, 
say, isn't it great? We're forgiven. God is going to look upon us with favor. I can't wait to, wait to see what my crops are going to do this year. Talking about their kids and their cattle, their plans for the future. And it was so much fun, they decided to stay there and have another seven days. The king and everybody agreed. Was this a curse? A yoke of bondage? This is the greatest outpouring of voluntary worship toward God that you see anywhere in the Old Testament. The whole nation keeping 14 days and God blessing them. You can't call that a curse. You can't call that some rigorous performance of some legalistic chore that is sort of like a yoke of bondage. Read the rest of that and then notice in verse 26, so there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not the like in Jerusalem. And the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. Well, I'm going to have to quit with that to go back to our final scripture that we began with in John 13 and verse 17. And I'll save a great deal more. All the other examples in the Old Testament, the examples in the New Testament, every scripture mentioning the annual holy days. Acts the second chapter, Acts 26, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians 5, let us keep the feast, Acts 27, 9, after the fast was passed, all of those scriptures about the Day of Atonement, how Jesus preached from Solomon's porch on the last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. But the point is that the righteous men of old, when they were right with God, kept the feasts of God, the annual holy days, because they, according to Exodus 31 and many other scriptures, were like an identification card, the stamp of God's seal of approval. That's where God's people are. At this season, that's what you'll find them doing, observing God's annual holy days. Whenever they got an unrighteous king, they got away from the annual holy days. They had nothing but horrible problems. They went into captivity. Their nation was, was in a shambles. When they had a great restoration, they had a great reform. They discovered the annual holy days. They got back to them. God began to bless them again. But the capstone of it all is the last part of Zechariah, the 14th chapter, that shows the very first act in the greatest time of restitution, another great reform, another great restoration that is going to occur at the very beginning of the millennium. An edict is going to go out to our brethren in the Church of God, Seventh Day, to our brethren in every other church, every other organization, to Seventh-day Adventists and Baptists and Catholics and Mormons and Episcopalians, you come up to Jerusalem and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And if they say, no, it's too far. Well, I don't think we should. My preacher tells me it's not necessary. God's going to say, okay, we'll see you next year probably. And during that whole year, no rain, no crops, no nothing. Spigots dry up. The rivers dry up. The lakes dry up. No, nothing. Plague after plague. Next year, they probably won't say it's too hard. It'll be easy. Little old piddly trip down to Jerusalem. Just to meet a whole bunch of thousands of happy folks, get in on some of the folk singing and the music and the loud instruments. Dance around and drink some of that tirosh. That's Hebrew for strong drink. Just have a ball in the Feast of Tabernacles and find out Jesus meant what he said. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. You know, it is fun to obey God. It's fun after you've obeyed God to look back and say, hey, I just obeyed God. You feel good about it. So I'll just say, have a happy Passover and a happy Feast of Unleavened Bread. <laughs>